chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. The passage is brief, but I'm not guaranteeing that my sermon will be. Um, Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please be seated? And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we thank you, Lord, for the insights that it gives us into the ministry of our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that we see the scope of his ministry, the way that we see the plans and the purpose of his ministry. Lord, we thank you for the way that in this we see a pattern also for us to follow. We see in this your plan for your church. And so, Lord, help us now as we look at this passage of Scripture, Lord, to hear who you are and to hear, Lord, what you are doing and to hear your plans, not just for a select few, but your plans for all of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, seeing as today is Father's Day, I'm going to tell you a story about a generous father. This father had three children, two boys and a girl. And this father loves his children very much and wants to give them a gift to show them how much he loves them. Well, the older brother receives a shovel and instructions to go and dig a hole in the walnut, under the walnut tree in their backyard. And so the boy digs and digs until he hits something. Thunk. He quickly and carefully uncovers the dirt and pulls it away to see that it's, it's, a tra- it's a chest. It's a large treasure chest. And so he clears all the dirt away, and, and he's, he's, his excitement, though, gives way to disappointment as he sees his, brother, his younger brother's name engraved on the side of the chest. And then below this brother's name, he sees the instructions to take the chest out of the hole. While the younger brother climbs down into the hole and eagerly lifts and lifts until he he manages to pull the chest out of the hole. But his excitement also gives way to disappointment as he tries to open the chest but discovers that it's locked. And no matter how hard he tries, he can't open it. The two brothers sit with their heads in their hands, looking at the large chest, disappointed and sad. But they have another. They have a sister. And the sister also has received a gift. And it came in the form of an envelope. And the sister eagerly opens the envelope and sees a chain. Now, it's not a gold chain. It's nothing fancy. It's just a metal chain. And she begins to, begins to pull the chain. And the more she, she pulls, she realizes this chain is a very long chain. And she's about to give up until she discovers at the end of the chain a key. And so she takes the key and she runs to the chest and puts the key in the lock. Click. It opens. And she lifts the lid to discover that it's a treasure chest full of gold and silver and precious jewels. You see, each of these children have been given a gift. And there was a treasure for them to enjoy, but individually they couldn't access the treasure. Their gifts were useless on their own. It is only when the children work together that the treasure is revealed and received. Our church is a lot like that, isn't it? Our Heavenly Father loves His church, and He's given us all gifts gifts for our blessing and for the advancement of his kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul says that Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And Paul goes on to talk about how using the gifts that we have received is a means whereby the church grows in unity, grows in the knowledge of the Son of God, 
grows in maturity and discernment, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in Christ, from whom, verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, friends, God doesn't need us. But in his sovereign plan, he has decreed that he would use us for the advance of his kingdom. This is the mission of the church. This is the mission of the whole church, not just part of the church. This is your mission. Now, some of us try to do the work on our own. And some of us don't do much work at all. But the gifts that God has given us are designed to be used together. They're designed to work together. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He again refers to the church as a body, explaining that all the members of the body, though many, are one body. The body is made up of feet and ears and eyes and noses, and God has arranged every part of the body according to his sovereign decree, as he chose you are here by God's sovereign decree. Every part of the body is indispensable. Your gifts are indispensable. You are indispensable. Well, this morning, as we look at just three verses, Luke 8, 1 to 3, we're going to get a different perspective on Jesus' ministry from what we have seen before. In this passage, there's no miracle performed, there's no teaching recorded, there's no dialogue, there's no conflict, there is just a general description of Jesus' continuing ministry and a description of those who went with him. Jesus is traveling throughout the land, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, but Jesus, Jesus is not going alone. The apostles are with him. The apostles are learning about the gospel and learning about gospel ministry from Jesus. Jesus is discipling the disciples, but there's others there as well. Women, many women, are traveling with Jesus. At this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is the only one who's doing the proclamation of the kingdom. Now that's soon going to, cha going to change as the apostles are going to be sent out. We'll see this in the next chapter. But even now, God is using others. He is using these women to advance the kingdom of God. Now, this was countercultural in Jesus' day, and it's countercultural in our day. We're getting a picture of the scope of Jesus' ministry, and we're also getting a picture of God's plan for the church. There are three, there are three, three, there are key, sorry, there are three key groups that Jesus is ministering to in this passage: the masses, the twelve, and a group of women. And Jesus' interaction with each of them is very informative. We're going to see in verse 1a, Jesus' ministry to the masses. And in 1b, Jesus ministering to the twelve. In verses 2 and 3a, Jesus ministering to women. And in 3b, women ministering to Jesus. So Jesus is seen here ministering to all. And some are ministering to him. It wasn't Jesus' goal to preach in the halls of power, though we'll see that his message has spread there as well. Jesus did not develop programs or set strategies and schemes. Jesus simply ministered to people. So in verse 1a, Jesus ministering to the masses. As I mentioned in the introduction of our study of the gospel according to Luke back in November, Luke essentially organizes his material in his gospel count ge geographically based on where Jesus ministers. And Luke 8 verses 1 to 3 begins a new subsection in his Galilean ministry known as the tour section where Jesus travels and teaches. And this is going to take us to the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry in Luke 9.50. And then after that, in Luke 9, 51, Jesus is going to set his face towards Jerusalem and set his face towards the cross. But here in this subsection, we have, it, we have the passage alternating between Jesus' teaching and miracles. And both reveal who Jesus is. Peter's confession 
of Jesus, Jesus as the Christ and the transfiguration are two of the, the best-known events in this subsection. Because we're going to see throughout this, this, section, this subsection that, that faith is going to increase, but so is opposition. Last week, remember, we saw the response of the woman who had experienced Jesus' love and forgiveness pouring out her tears and pouring out expensive ointment on Jesus' feet in her heartfelt response of love towards Jesus. But remember that Simon the Pharisee, on the other hand, judged the woman and slandered Jesus in response to his heartfelt rebellion. Well, soon after, we're told in chapter 8, verse 1, that Jesus went through the cities and the villages proclaiming and bringing the, God, the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, the sense here is that, that this is a continual itinerant ministry rather than simply traveling from one city and then another city and another city. This is an ongoing ministry that Jesus is, is seen to be performing here. Jesus ministered in large communities and small communities throughout the entire region. Again, the ESV says that he was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, remember, is Jesus' reign and Jesus' rule. And so what Jesus is doing here as he's heralding the kingdom and he is, is also, he's saying, the king is here. I'm the king. But while it's true that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God and, and as the coming king brought the kingdom of God, the passage is saying here that Jesus was proclaiming and presenting the good news of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming and presenting. This is known as a, a hendiatus. These are, are two words that go together and communicate one thought. So when you say that the coffee is nice and hot, those are two words that go together that communicate a single thought. Hendiatus. Another example, there's many examples in the scripture, but one is, is in 2 Chronicles 26. In God's hand are power and might. Power and might go together. Hendiatus, that, that two, thought, two words that teach one thought. They communicate one idea. So Jesus here is proclaiming and bringing the kingdom. Now the word that's it's translated proclaiming here is, is often translated preaching. Jesus is widely and powerfully heralding the arrival of the kingdom of God. And he's also presenting the good news of the kingdom. The word good news, remember, is, is gospel. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. And the, the word that's used here is, is uh, in Greek, it's euangelion, which is translated evangelism. Evangelism. So Jesus is here doing evangelism. Jesus' message was the good news, the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said at the outset of his ministry in Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And remember what he also said to the, the people in Capernaum when they, they tried to force him to, to stay in the city. He said in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus came to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize people. Now, as you know, when we proclaim the gospel to people, before we tell them the good news, we have to tell them the bad news. If you want to tell someone that, that they need to be saved, they're like, well, saved from what? So they need to understand the bad news before they can understand the good news. Well, the bad news was that, is that everyone is in bondage to sin and under the holy and just wrath of God. So Jesus delivered the good news that if people repent of their sin and put their faith in him, they would be saved. Jesus is, adv is advancing the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. He is saying to the masses, the king is here, the kingdom has come. Come and enter the kingdom by trusting in me. As we think about, about this in our own context, as we, as we think about, about what's going on in the world around us, I've got to say that, that I never expected things in our culture to change so quickly. I've had many people say this as, to me as well. We expected change. We, we know the, the, the direction that culture is going. But I never expected things to change so quickly, to deteriorate so quickly. 
And it's so easy when we look at what's going on around us to throw our hands up. We either throw our hands up in surrender or we throw our hands up to raise our fists, fists to fight. But neither option is open to us as Christians. We cannot surrender to the wickedness of this world. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But neither can we fight the way the world fights. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6 reminds us that for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we don't surrender, and we don't fight the way the world fights. Well, how do we fight then? What do we do? How do we respond to what's taking place around us? Well, brothers and sisters, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the only answer. Through the gospel, we arm ourselves with the spiritual armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. And so when the, the, the spiritual armor that we're given here is both our defense and our offense against the schemes of the devil, against the wickedness of this world, and against the desires of our flesh. So through the gospel, we advance the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is our mandate. To advance the gospel. To proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus went all through the countryside proclaiming the good news. We also are to follow in his footsteps proclaiming the good news. I'm sure you've heard the term evangelical Christian. I've got to ask, is there any other kind of Christian? That there is no other kind of Christian than an evangelical Christian. An unevangelical Christian is an oxymoron. Those words don't go together. It is only Christians who have the good news. It is only Christians who have the, any good news. And you and I have been entrusted with this good news in jars of clay, as weak and as frail as we are. We've been entrusted with this gospel. And so we are called, we are commanded to proclaim it to others. When was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time you told someone about Jesus Christ? Well, if you are truly born again, ask God to fill you with such love for him and such love for others that you can't help but tell people about Jesus. Jesus ministered to the masses. And so must we. Well, now let's consider Jesus ministering to the 12, verse 1b. Jesus ministering to the 12. Jesus, Jesus did not travel alone. As he traveled throughout the countryside, he wasn't alone. In fact, as you read your Gospels, you can see that Jesus was rarely alone. Early in his ministry, he called the twelve apostles. They're introduced to us in Luke 6, verses 14 to 16. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. So apart from the times that Jesus retreated for prayer, he almost always had the 12 apostles with, them, with him. For an occasion, the smaller group of Peter, James, and John, and, and, and also on occasions, just Peter himself. But the 12 were with Jesus, listening to his teaching and watching him minister. And so again, Jesus was discipling the disciples. Jesus was preparing them for ministry. Jesus took those with him, who he would train to continue his ministry after he was gone. Jesus is ministering to them and showing them what it means to minister to others. 
Now again, at this point, Jesus is the only one proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The disciples are, are watching and learning so that they will be equipped to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God themselves. Shortly, in, in Luke 9, in the very next chapter, Luke 9, 1-5, we'll see the disciples being sent out on the same mission as Jesus sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, Luke 9, 2. When we get to the book of Acts, Lord willing, we'll see how the Holy Spirit is given to the apostles to empower them in the ministry as Jesus ascends to heaven. He has handed the ministry over to them. They're taking over the reins. And then gradually, in the rest of the New Testament, we see that the ministry is handed over to the church. It's handed over to you and to me. Friends, the office of the apostle does not exist anymore. According to the scriptures, apostles must personally witness Christ incarnate. You can read about that in Acts 1, 21 and 22. Apostles must be personally commissioned by Christ. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 and 1 Corinthians 1, 1. And in the case of an apostle, their ministry is always attested by miracles. You can see that in many places, notably in Acts 2, 43, and Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, and, and other passages. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that the, the marks of the apostle were evident in us. With the death of John at the end of the first century, the office of the apostle was finished. But what can we learn? What can we learn about Jesus' ministry from his ministry to the 12 apostles? Well, there's several things, but one key example, one key thing is to be intentional in discipling others. Be intentional in discipling others. Are you discipling anyone? Are you discipling anyone? Well, in order to be a disciple, in order, so in order to disciple others, you must be a disciple. If you're going to tell others about Jesus, you'd better know him personally yourself. If you're going to help others grow in their faith, you'd better be growing in your faith. You'd better be, be practicing the disciplines of a disciple. You'd better be spending the time, especially studying the word and, and praying. And you'd also better be discipled by someone else. As I reflect on my, my life since coming to Christ, I'm so thankful for the men that God has led into my life. Men who welcomed me into their homes. As I sat around their tables and, and spent time worshiping God with their families. Men who, who taught me the scriptures. Men who walked with me through the ups and the downs of life. Men who taught me what it means to be a Christian man. Fathers, you have that responsibility for your children. Now, mothers, you do too. But it's to fathers especially that the, that the command is given to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, as the spiritual head of your home, ultimately it falls upon you. This is your ultimate responsibility. But it doesn't stop with your family. You have a responsibility in the church as well. Now, my prayer is that everyone in this church will be discipled and discipling. That all of us will be engaged in discipleship. That everyone will have intentional relationships where they're being discipled by someone and that they are discipling someone else. And it takes time. And it takes commitment. But I wonder what things are there that you could or maybe need to, to let go of in your life so that you have time to do the ministry that God is calling you to do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, that you always have to be sitting down in informal conversations. A lot of ministry just takes place in the context of daily life. That's the way Jesus did it, isn't it? Jesus took the twelve with him. He, he, wa he walked with them and talked with them as he conducted his ministry. Now, you can take someone with you when, you when you go to visit someone from the church, especially someone who's in hospital or, or someone who is a shut-in. I hope you're doing those things. 
Now, right now, it's a little bit more difficult because of the, the COVID-19 restrictions, but, but I hope that it's, it's your regular practice to be involved in ministry to others in the church, especially those who are, are, are weak and, and infirm. And you could take somebody along with you when you go to do that. And in so doing, they can learn what it means to minister to another person. Now, I know of pastors who are almost never alone in the context of their ministry. They're, they're either, in their, the only times they're alone is when they're in their studies specifically preparing for a sermon, but the rest of the time they've always got people around them. They're discipling young men and, and meeting with them and, and taking them along when they engage in ministry. But it's not just for pastors. All of us can do this. You can, you can, again, you can take someone with you as you minister to others in the context of your daily life, but, but it might even not, not just be that. You can, you can invite a young man over to help you with a project around the house. I've had men, men from the church come and, and, and help with me working on projects in the church and, and projects in, in the home. And it's, it's really good, I think, especially in ministering to men, to, to, to work with each other side by side and, and talk as you're completing a project. You can talk about the things of the Lord, and you're also training them a skill, and you're also getting help, which is kind of a bonus. But, but, but the main thing is you're, you're looking for opportunities to minister to others. You're making opportunities intentionally to minister to others. Ladies, you can do the same thing. You, you can invite a woman into the home. It, it doesn't mean your house doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be like a museum in order to, for you to invite someone into your home. But bringing someone, bringing a young lady into your wife to, to show her what it means to, even in the midst of chaos, to, to minister to your family. This is something that, that, that you can also do. This is something I think for, for all of us, men and women, as, as a, in our church, we can grow in. And not just individually as men and women, but, but as families, we can invite Couples into our home and singles into our home. So we sit around the table with them and, and we, we, we talk with them and share meals with them and talk about the things of the Lord and, and talk to them what it means to, to, to have a, a Christian family. Again, this doesn't just happen. We need to be intentional in, in seeking ways to do this. My, my, may our homes become discipleship centers where ministry is taking place, just, just like breathing. But as we think about Jesus as an example in discipleship, we need to understand that there's one key difference between Jesus' discipleship and ours. In Jesus' discipleship, it was all one way. Jesus taught the disciples. They didn't teach him. Jesus did not need to learn from his disciples. But we, on the other hand, can and should learn from those we are discipling. I've learned a lot over the years from those to whom I've been involved in, in from those I've, I've been involved in discipleship relationships. It's, it's never a, a one-way street with our discipleship. It goes back and forth. May we all be willing to learn from each other. Again, my, my prayer for this church is that each one of us will be discipling and discipled by others. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So now this is Paul speaking to Timothy the elder as Timothy is leading the church to be intentional in, in entrusting the teaching that he's received into the lives of others. But the word that is translated men here can refer to both men and women. You need to interpret, when you see this word, anthropos, you have to look at it in light of the context to see whether it's, it's referring to men or women or both. Now, in this passage, this can mean men, entrusting it to men and women. But this does not mean that women can teach men. I'll say that again, very clearly, women are not to teach men the scriptures. Paul says quite clearly in, second, in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to your, exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to be quiet. But I also want to make very clear that women play a crucial role in the ministry of the church. 
We're going to see that later on in this passage. But even just here in, in Titus 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Now we're going to talk about more about this in a few moments. But this is a, this is a good segue into my third point, where we're going to see Jesus ministering to women, verses uh, 2 and 3a. As Jesus traveled through the cities ministering, we're told again that not only the twelve were with him, but also some women. In fact, you can see in verse 3 that it was actually many women who were traveling with Jesus. Now, in that culture, it was common for a rabbi, for a teacher, to, to travel throughout the land, to have an itinerant ministry, going from, from city and city to, to city, to town to town, and to, to, and to conduct his teaching. And it was also common in that culture that, that others would travel with him. But it was very uncommon for women to travel with the rabbi. It just didn't happen. In fact, for a rabbi in that culture wouldn't have even taught women. Women in that culture were seen as inferior. But here we see that Jesus is ministering to these women and he brings a large number of them with him in his ministry. We need to understand just how countercultural this was. It would have provoked criticism and scorn, much like the woman who had washed Jesus' feet with her tears and anointed them with oil in the last passage. Jesus was not concerned about culture. Jesus was intentional to do what's right. We're told that women have been healed of evil spirits and diseases. And we're, we're introduced to three of them specifically, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. Well, first, Mary Magdalene. Now, Magdalene is not her last name. Magdalene is a reference to the town from which she's from, Magdala, which is on the, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, quite close to Tiberias. And Mary was, is commonly described as a beautiful but formerly immoral woman. And she's oftenly, often wrongly identified as the formerly immoral woman from the previous passage. But there's no biblical evidence for this. Or any sense at all that, that she was either beautiful or that, that she had been immoral. All we're told is that, that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. That, that Jesus had rescued her from demon possession. And that now she's following him. Well, Mary Magdalene, as we'll see in Luke 24, was among the women who was there at Jesus' empty tomb when the angels declared that he is not here, for he has risen. What a privilege. And she also had the unparalleled privilege of being one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. Now, this wasn't by accident. This was Jesus' plan to go to her. Jesus was honoring this woman. We also read of Joanna, who we'll see in Luke 24, was also there with Mary Magdalene at the garden tomb. She was the wife, Luke tells us, of Cusa, Herod's household manager. Her husband would have been a powerful man, and, and, and they would have been a very wealthy family. In this, we're seeing how far the ministry of Jesus and, and the teaching of Jesus had spread. It even had spread to Herod's household. Remember, we, we looked at Herod, in, at Herod in chapter 7 because of John the Baptist's imprisonment when John the Baptist had criticized Herod for the, his immoral relationship with his adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law. The mention of, of Herod's name here reminds us of Rome and the fact that, that Herod was there in Israel as the puppet king placed there by the Romans to rule in their stead. Well, the third woman that we meet here is Susanna. She's only mentioned in this passage. We really know nothing about her apart from the fact that she followed Jesus. Well, these women were outsiders. Outsiders in a culture where even being a woman meant to a large extent that you were an outsider. Jesus values women. Jesus values women, and so must we. The degradation of women in that culture is a result of the fall. You can see the consequences of the fall all through Scripture. Abraham forcing Sarah to lie and putting her virtue at risk in order to protect himself. 
polygamy, rape, adultery, neglect. But the same is true today. The consequences are evident all around the world. In Muslim countries where women are forced to wear, to wear a burqa and to walk several paces behind their husbands. In parts of India where, where sati, the, the practice of burning widows on their husbands' funeral, funeral pyre, is still practiced. Not only do you have the horrors of, of, of these sorts of things, but you also have abusive relationships and pornography and human trafficking. They're all sad examples of men oppressing women. That's not just in other countries. It happens here as well. Violence against women is a huge problem in this country. Half of women in Canada have experienced at least one incident of physical or sexual abuse by the age of 16. Half. It's horrific, but that's not the worst of it. In Canada, there are 100,000 babies murdered through abortion every year, and the majority of those are little girls. You might not realize this, but the, the practice of gender-selective abortion is taking place in this country. That's the reason why, ladies, if, if you go to the... the the, uh, to get an ultrasound, the radiologist or the, the technician is not allowed to tell you the gender of the baby because of gender-selective abortion. It's gendercide. And it's taking place right here. The consequences of the fall and the relationship between men and women is taking place in your home as well. Every time you and your spouse have an argument, every time you let your eyes or your thoughts wander, men, every time you act insensitively towards your wife, you are showing forth the results of the fall. And Peter warned men in 1 Peter 3.7 that, that any man who does not consider his wife, any man who does not treat his wife properly, will not even be listened to by God. God will not even hear his prayers. Peter says there that women are co-heirs of salvation. Men and women are equal before Christ. Yes, they have different roles, but they are equal as co-heirs of salvation. And we see this increasing and picking momentum through the ministry of the gospel. As the gospel changes hearts, as marriages are changed, as people are sanctified and grow in Christ's likeness. It's all a result of the fall, but Jesus came to overturn the effects of the fall. Men, Jesus values women, and you must value women too. First, value your own wife. By God's grace, seek to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've already explained how it's, it's important for you to disciple your children, especially to teach them about the Lord, that they must turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. But teach your, your daughters what it means to be a woman in a culture where where gender has been completely mixed up. Teach them what it means. Teach your, your sons what it means to be a man, what it means to treat women with respect, and show them that in the way that you treat your wife. But again, it's not just in your home. Value the women in the church. Be thankful to God for them. Pray to God, giving thanks for the women in this church. Be kind to them. Encourage them where it's appropriate. Praise God for them. For they are your sisters in Christ. And even in the community, value the women in the community. Do not just view them as, as a sex object. May that be the furthest thing from our minds. May we see these, these unbelieving women as our, in our culture as women who have been made in the image of God. 
and has fallen and needing a savior. When you have that kind of a, of a mindset, it will be impossible for you to, to look at them in a lustful way. But women, I, I want to speak personally to you here for a few moments. First and foremost, you must be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You personally must turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. You must be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You must continue to study the word, to learn the word, and to live the word. By God's grace, to, to, live, to live out what it means to be a disciple of Christ in your particular context. Sisters, you are more than how the world defines you. You are more than your job. You're more than your responsibilities in the home. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are a daughter of the King. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is how Christ sees you. And so learn to see yourself in that regard. Thank God that the gospel has purchased you from your sin. Your worth comes through the death of Jesus Christ for you. This is your value. This is who you ultimately are. This is how you eternally are. Sisters, you are the aroma of Christ in your homes and in the church. When I see you, serving each other faithfully, serving the church faithfully, encouraging one another, praying for one another, engaging in evangelism and pro-life ministry, showing forth the joy of the Lord in the midst of, of extreme chronic pain. You are encouraging my heart. You're ministering to me when you do that. You're, you're, you're ministering to, to the whole body when you do that. Because you are doing what God is enabling you to do. You're reflecting Christ in the church into a watching world, and God is glorified in that. I am encouraged, I am spurred on by your faith and by your example. I praise God for you. And this takes us to my final point. Verse 3b, women ministering to Jesus. There are many other women there in addition to Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna. And Luke tells us that they provided for them out of their means. And so here we get an insight into the way that Jesus' needs were met during his ministry. John 13, 29 reveals that there was a common purse from which Judas liberally helped himself, but it was from this common purse purse from these pooled funds that, that food was purchased and the poor received help. And we're told here that, that this money, to, to a large extent, came from these women. That these women provided for Jesus and for the twelve apostles. Now just think about this for a minute. In, in Jesus' incarnation, Jesus' life was being saved, was being sustained by his creation. Of course, Jesus knew that, that ultimately it was his father who was providing his heavenly bread, his daily bread, rather. But the God who ordained the ends has also ordained the means, and God had ordained that Jesus would be provided for from these women. What a privilege! to be used of God to sustain Jesus in his ministry. Now, of course, we can't do that today. But we can be involved in ministering to Jesus. Sisters, you can be involved in ministering to Je for Jesus to Jesus. You are involved in ministering to Jesus. 
just as the sinful woman we discussed last week acted out of love, so also these women gave to Jesus out of their love. They provided the resources that he needed. Women play a major role in Luke's narrative. We've, we've seen this already. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Anna, the prophetess. Peter's mother-in-law. The widow of Nain. The sinful woman, or the formerly sinful woman from our last passage. Women played a vital role in the ministry of our Lord, and they still do today. The ministry of women to Jesus Christ enabled his ministry to proceed. And the ministry of women in the church today, in their families, in the wider community, is a continuation of what these ladies were engaged in. They are continuing the ministry to Jesus. Sisters, as you pray, as you pray, you are ministering to Jesus. As you disciple one another, you are ministering to Jesus. As you serve practically in the church, you are ministering to Jesus. As you engage in evangelism, you are ministering to Jesus. Again, you are continuing in the footsteps of these women. These women whose names have been recorded in history. These women who Jesus valued. So we can see here in this passage that, that Jesus ministered to the masses, Jesus ministered to the 12 apostles, Jesus ministered to women, Jesus had, we see the full scope of Jesus' ministry, Jesus ministered to all. We see also the, the practice that Jesus engaged in as, as he was laying forth a pattern of his plan for the church to this day. Now I, I know I began with a story about a generous father, but in honor of of Father's Day, I'm going to tell you another story about a, another generous father. This father has five children. I said earlier, I'm, I'm not talking about you, Joshua. You know, you're, you're a good and generous father. This father has three sons and two daughters. And out of, the, out of his love for them, he wants to give them a gift. And, and so he, he brings a big, heavy package into the living room. And it's in a box, and it's wrapped up, and the, the, the children run and, and eagerly open up this package. And it's, it's one of those Makita power tool sets. I think I'd be really happy if you gave me that, but, but maybe, maybe your kids wouldn't be. But anyway, so but it's one of those Makita power tool sets. And, and the father tells him that the family home is in desperate need of repair, and, and so he, he, he gives to one a, a circular saw. The eldest sister gets a circular saw. But she doesn't understand the value of this gift, so she just puts it on a shelf and lets it collect dust. The brother gets a hammer drill, and, and he's, he's really excited. He's, he's like, wow, this is pretty cool. This is powerful. And, and so he uses it to crack walnuts. The brother with the reciprocating saw grumbles about dad just, just giving the gift for, for his dad's selfish purposes. And, and so, so he goes home and and uses the saw to build his own deck. The brother with the angle grinder doesn't read the instructions and, and has an accident with the family cat. Now, because of the, the children, I'm not going to go into the details here, but, but this leaves the last sister, the sister with the cordless drill, and she's all alone. She's left all alone to help her father. I wonder, are, are you like the eldest sister, letting the gift that God has given you collect dust on a shelf? Are, are you like the brother using the gift that God has given you for entirely the wrong purpose? Are you like the next brother using the gift that God has given you for, for your own selfish purposes? Are you like the third brother eager to use the gift that God has given you but, but, but causing damage through your lack of skill? Or are you like the sister, eagerly using the gift that God has given you, but desperately needing help? What are you doing 
to advance the kingdom of God? What are you doing to minister to the lives of others? You might say, well, I'm not an evangelist. But you are called to be an evangelist. You might not have the gift of evangelism, but you are called to proclaim the gospel to every creature. You might say, well, you know, I don't, I don't have many, many gifts to offer as a discipler. Well, seek discipleship. Say, so will you please come and, and talk with me and, and walk with me and, and show me how I, I can do something in the church to, to serve. Maybe you don't even really know what your spiritual gifting is. Again, talk to somebody. Talk to one, one of the pastors in the church who would be happy to talk with you and explore these things with you. Do you need help? Don't assume that other people know what you're doing. Ask, say, look, I'm trying to engage in this ministry, but I really need help here. Would somebody please help me? Now, I see that, that to a large extent, as, as a church, many of us are, are doing these things. But I believe we also really need to grow in these things. You know, as I've, I've said many times, I've, I've said earlier that that, that I am that I, have, I am a, a pastor and a teacher. I've been given to this church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We saw that in Ephesians 4.12. But again, I am, I'm the associate minister. You are the ministers. As part of the body, I minister too. But, but my main job is to equip you for ministry. This is my responsibility and it's my privilege. And I really am eager to work with you in this so that, that you can function, so that the whole body can grow together as it builds itself up in love. We've all been given gifts for the building of the church, for the glory of God. Again, apart from, apart from the Lord, no one, no one person has all the gifts. No one can say, I don't need you. And no one can say, you don't need me. We all need each other because God has decreed that we would all work together for the advance of the gospel and the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the ministry of the church. We praise you, Lord, for the mystery of the church. Although you are the sovereign God, you have decreed that you would work according to means, that you would use people for the advance of your kingdom as you work in us and through us, as you help us to accomplish the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to walk in. Lord, we wonder sometimes what we're doing. Sometimes we don't even give it much thought at all. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that we are your workmanship in Christ. Not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification. Not just to be content that, that we've all, we've got it made now. But Lord, to seek to be used of you for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.